Hello, and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so in this episode, I'll be looking at chapters 7, 8, and 9 of At the Mountains of Madness. This is part 3 of 4. So, um, yeah, um, basically the story up to this point takes our narrator, uh, William Dyer, uh, a, a geologist who's leading an expedition to the Antarctic uh, to find core samples. Uh, part of the team discovers uh, some kind of strange life, some prehistoric life that doesn't fit contemporary understandings of evolution. They investigate it, but that team disappears. Dyer seeks them out, uh, finds the whole team killed except for two people. And so him and a graduate student, Dan Ford, go into the mountains of madness to try to find what happened to them and in doing so discovers the civilization of the elder things if you want more detail about the first half of the story you're gonna have to go back and listen to the first two episodes i'm not going to repeat myself as much as i normally do um, because uh, there's a lot to say in these three chapters in some ways these chapters begin really the heart of the story it's sort of kind of what we've been waiting for, right? The real description of the Elder Things civilization. It's also the most like awkward part of the story because of reasons I talked about last time. It's so contrived how they're able to reconstruct this history. We need to know it. Our narrator needs to uh, discover it so we can get the story. And it's a story Lovecraft certainly wants to tell. I mean, the story, I guess, could work without going into the details of the civilization. It sort of works in the nameless city. But... You know, this is such a detailed account. Everything, every little detail is is here. The supplies they take on different legs of their expedition. You know, the people on it. The whole, you know, even stuff that you could consider relevant to the story, Lovecraft puts out in very, very meticulous detail here. Um, and he wants to tell the history of the Elder Things. He wants to tell the history of their civilization. Um, why? Does it parallel our civilization? Does it a par parallel Anglo-American civilization? Is it a metaphor for the decline of civilization? Um, it's hard to say it's not because we know what Lovecraft writes in his letters. I've been exploring those in this podcast, uh, looking at the first, second, third volume of the Selected Letters. And especially in the second and third volume of the Selected Letters, he writes a lot about rising and falling civilizations and the future of European civilization and and what an ideal civilization might look like. He really thinks a lot about this, but he never really has the chance to write much about it until he gets to the mound. And remember, the mound is something he wrote right before this. Um, and we haven't talked about it on the podcast yet because I do the revisions after the, the stories of any particular period. But, um, you know, he, he finally gets his chance in these two stories to explore the whole history of a civilization and and he needs to tell the story somehow and he the way he does this is with these murals so they run into these wall murals these bas reliefs across the walls of the city of the elder things and by taking detailed notes photographs studying it as systematically as possible these two characters are able to reconstruct this history and it's a bit preposterous for reasons i talked about last time for me it's it's the only way we get this story, right? It, you know, it's it's not. And this isn't the first time that Lovecraft did this. He sort of does this in the Nameless City. The Mile, though, it's a it's a much more active civilization that our character encounters. So he's able to encounter it firsthand. 
um, but um, not in this case. And here he's in, we're only seeing the remnants. There are survivors, but they're only the remnants of a once great civilization. So anyways, chapter seven, if you, if you want to jump ahead to that part of the story, that is where you're going to find the, the details about the Elder Things Society. Now, what do we learn about them? Well, one thing is, well, we know from Lovecraft's letters that he's really fearful of like a machine culture, right? So the question is always overhanging this story is like, to what degree does he side with the Elder Things and to what degree does he side with the Shoggoths, their slaves? And most people interpret this that Lovecraft seems to have the sympathies for the Elder Thing civilization. They're presented more as the victims, not as the victimizers. And, and recent interpretations are kind of turn this on his head and say, oh, wait a minute, you know, we should we can side with the Shoggoths um, if we want, right? And we can see them as as enslaved creatures. Even in that Lovecraft Country TV series, you know, there's like the, the cultists are sort of enslaving these Shoggoth-like creatures. They're not quite the Shoggoths as described here, but they're, they're some kind of mix of vampire and Shoggoth in a way. They have all the eyes, but it's it's not quite the same. But they're slaves, right? They're they're enslaved. They can be controlled by whistles and, and the, the piping and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, Anyways, this the elder things though pretty much right away Lovecraft here tells us these is a society that rejects technology and rejects the mechanical life, right? Now later on it's revealed they're only able to do this because they already have a degree of understanding of science, they can create life and they can create slaves. That's how they can sustain a civilization. It's kind of like the Antebellum South, right? Kind of a a throwback culture in a way that can survive in an without modernizing and industrializing because it rests on slave labor. Quote, they had lived under the sea a good deal, building fantastic cities and fighting terrific battles with nameless adversaries by means of intricate devices employing unknown principles of energy. Evidently, their scientific and mechanical knowledge far, far surpassed man's today, though they made use of its more widespread and elaborate forms only when obliged to. Some of the sculptures suggested that they had passed through a stage of mechanized life on other planets, but had receded upon finding an effects emotionally unsatisfying unsatisfying so this is what he's i mean this clearly is something that shows up in his letters he's really thinking in these terms about uh our own civilization as heading into this mechanized mechanical age and this is going to be disastrous he doesn't think it's avoidable really but here he imagines a society that kind of got through that and then is able to kind of embrace like an arts and crafts movement or something mixed in with this kind of perverse sort of slavery it's, it's post-industrial in a good way, not post-industrial in the, the Wire Season 2 kind of way. Um, so um, now also revealed early on is that they create life. They created the, the Shoggoths, right? Now, evolution, we're told, is, is uh, organic or is natural. It's not that directed by the elder things over millions of years, but they still create the initial life. And this was used initially for agriculture. Quote, when the star-headed old ones, and here they use the term old ones, not elder things, but it's the same. When the star-headed old ones on this planet had synthesized their simple food forms and had bred a good supply of shoggoths, they allowed other cell groups to develop into other forms of animals and vegetable life for sundry purposes, expiring only whose presence became troublesome. Now, this is really wonderfully done because these elder things, their biology is vegetable, they, they seem to be able to uh, eat uh, lower plant, like 
dirt and like they're able to get their nutrients from the soil and things like that. They, they are kind of plant life, but they also can eat organic material. I guess it's like a, maybe like a Venus flytrap or something that they can eat organic material, but also just get their sustenance from, from the earth itself. Um, but they create life and that life. So we, if they create the Shagath and we are products of this evolutionary heritage, we're related then to the Shoggoths, not to the elder things. Um, now it's not clear; it's not stated explicitly. It's maybe hinted at here. It's not. It's not hundred percent clear to me that we evolve from these life forms, or if there's the kind of there's the a natural evolution on the planet, and then there's the evolution started off, kicked off by the old ones, um, and maybe they're parallel. Um, but it makes more sense that they planted life, they seeded life on Earth. Um, in the seas specifically so um, yeah they're they're kind of an amphibious species they can live on land and underwater and eventually they flee to underwater uh, for various reasons um, we get details about how they travel how they you know they can f travel via their wings um, all their different physical features they're long-lived right and of course some are still alive. That's the kind of the, that we don't won't get to that till the next episode, the final, the climax of the story is revealed that these are actively living creatures, still hanging around. Uh, but they certainly can be very long lived. You know, and we get a lot of details about like even things like the education of the young ones, their philosophy, their philosophical education. Um, and he kind of dodges it. He doesn't give us the details here. Maybe not to bore us too much, but he kind, of, he kind of Dyer says, well, I have a whole like chapter on their education and their philosophy and stuff in a book I'm going to write about these guys later on. Um, another fascinating aspect, I can't talk about everything that he says about this society because it, it is kind of rich. But another really interesting thing that parallels, I think, the letters is how they're really not family based. Right. And Lovecraft wrote about like the crisis of the modern family in a few of his letters written around this time. It shows up in one to Frank Belknap Long, uh, one to Will Woodburn, uh, to who? I forget, just to one of the other guys he, he wrote a long letter to. Uh, he talks about family anyways. Marriage, then the like erotic art. He, there was a lot of interesting letters that we explored that, that looked at these things. Um, but Lovecraft just sort of, evades family by saying that these people are kind of past family they're beyond family the old ones quote the old ones had no biological basis for the family phase of mammal life but seemed to organize large households on the principle of comfortable space utility uh, and as we deduce from the pictured occupations and diversions of co-dwellers congenial mental association in furniture their homes had kept everything in the center of huge rooms leaving all the wall spaces free for decorative treatment um, so they live kind of communally. We even get the suggestion that their civilization, their government was like socialistic almost, kind of a, um, like a complex modern socialism, right? Which Lovecraft does seem to think that one outcome of machine culture would be a, a type of social, a socialist state, right? As, as a, as a we, means to kind of manage things. Um, so... Maybe he's just kind of playing with this idea here. Um, 
they become very urban. You know, it seems that agriculture is more or less automated by the fact that they have these slaves to, um, that have evolved over the centuries, over the millions of years of their civilization through this unguided process. So the Shoggoths kind of have end up with sort of a mind of their own, right? That's, that's kind of, this is why it's important, right? The Shoggoths start out as slaves, but they're able to kind of evolve over all this time and become something different, right? They're, they're not equals of the elder things, but able to resist them, right? I think we'll have to get into this in the next episode because it shows up in the final pages of the book. Now, as for their, their history, we learn that the elder things uh, are colonizers. They're, they've colonized much of the earth at some point, um, you know, and, and maybe are responsible for some other cultural relics here and there, you know, certainly that suggests that some of this is, is hinted at in the Necronomicon. Um, but eventually they end up in a conflict with uh, basically the quote, pre-human swan of Cthulhu. So something so it's tied with, basically they go to war with Cthulhu and his minions. Um, a land race of beings shaped like octopi and probably corresponding to the fabulous pre-human spawn of Cthulhu. I'm pretty sure this is not how he conceived of this in the Call of Cthulhu, right? It's really a god that's worshipped by generations of humanity that's lived on Earth for a long time. Here, Cthulhu becomes something that comes from space, uh, like aliens that come from space and, and dwell on Earth. So... In Call of Cthulhu, it's really more of the sea and from the sea. But here, he, he makes, it part, makes it part of the cosmic geography, really, really explicitly. Um, so they fight a war against them. They end up fighting with like the Migos as well. So the Elder Things are engaged in these titanic struggles with other civilizations, which, of course, is another element, I think, of Lovecraft's philosophy and thoughts about uh, civilization. Now, I think the... Now, eventually, they get driven underground, underwater, as a result of these uh, of these wars and these conflicts. But the final major element of the history of the Elder Things, as account, recounted in Chapter Seven of At the Mountains of Madness, is the relationship with the Shoggoth. One feature is they kind of lose the ability to create life. Quote, with the march of time, as the sculpture sadly confessed, the art of creating new life from inorganic material had been lost, so that the old ones had to do behind on the moldings of forms already in existence. On land, the great reptiles proved highly practical, but the Shoggoths of the sea, reproducing by fission and acquiring a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, presented for a time a formidable problem. And also becoming more problematic is controlling the Shoggoths who are increasingly developing. They develop a, quote, semi-stable brain. Um, they end up with their own will. Um, that echoes the will of the old ones without always obeying it. And this, this is highlighted at the end of the story, that they somehow are capable of only parroting the elder things, culture and language, right? But not able to really, and they're able to resist. They're able to have a will of their own, but they're not to that level of intellectual maturity that they're able to kind of stand on their own two feet, right? So if you want to take this as a metaphor for American slavery, it, it really is sort of problematic. I hate using that word, but, you know, it's sort of suggesting that African-American culture as it emerged in the Americas, as it, well, as it emerged in the context of slavery, could, the slave could only parrot the master, right? And you could, you could point to things that maybe suggest this, like the fact that 
you know, English becomes a major language, not African languages or um, Anglo-American, Euro-American religions become the dominant religion of African-Americans and enslaved men and women. Um, but this, as most scholars and historians of slavery now acknowledge, there's a lot of creativity that's autonomous um, and pursued by, by enslaved men and women. That's not just a crude copying of, of the master's culture, right? Now, maybe I'm thinking too much about this and seeing, thinking of it too much as a, as a metaphor for American slavery, but it's, it's hard not to because there's a lot here about just the problematic of control, right? How the control over the Chagas broke down over, over time. Um, and then they eventually rebel. Quote, the, um, there seemed to have become peculiar and tractable towards the middle of the Permian age, perhaps 150 million years ago, when a veritable war of resubjugation was waged upon them by the marine old ones. Pictures of this war and of the headless slime-coated fashion in which the Chagas typically left their slain victims held a marvelous fearsome quality despite the unvarying abyss of untold ages. The old ones had used curious weapons of molecular disturbances against the rebel entities, and in the end have achieved, had achieved a complete victory. Unquote. So they're able to maintain control, but only through a, a, a very bloody and decisive and, and, and horrible war. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to say too much more about Chapter 7. There's a little bit more about geography and how continental drift theory kind of fits into the relocation of this civilization to Antarctica, as well as we see after the war with the Migo, the, the old ones move under underwater. Um, so there's some interesting geography stuff that he plays with here, um, you know, which, you know, remember this was a, a civilization that seemed to colonize the whole of Earth, right? But gets reduced to this Antarctic outpost over time. So there's uh, elements of them around here and there. So anyways, let's, that's, a, that's a really important chapter, I think. It's, it's the most contrived, I, I think, certainly. I, I see it that way, but it has a lot of fascinating things in it. So then we get to chapter eight, um, which is um, kind of carries on the history a little bit. Um, in, but kind of tells another element of the story, another aspect of the story. Specifically, the story we get is the story of the civilization in decline. So... Um, Chapter 7 is a civilization at its peak, at its height, at its uh, most victorious. And actually, I think it's in Chapter 8 that we see them move back underwater. I may have spoke too quickly about that, because that's after their decline that they withdraw to the, to the water. But, um, but that's what's retold in Chapter 8. So we start out with a bunch of interesting geographical connections. He kind of carries us up from the end of Chapter 7, talking about uh, Lang, the plateau of Lang in, in Tibet, um, other discoveries out there and you know even mentions there might be a connection here to Kadath, which he says is mentioned in the Panoptic manuscripts which shows up a lot here um, this might be the first mention of the Panoptic manuscripts since Polaris at least it's the most significant mention of them and may have showed up in other tales maybe it's in dream quest of unknown Kadath, but you know he doesn't say much about them it's not quite clear what's in them until we until this story this one has the most maybe hints at what's in it that they somehow are telling the story of this history in a very subtle and very removed way 
um, yeah, it's it's really interesting here because this is this chapter eight talks about the decline of the of the elder things, but it's also we get this sense of of trauma and emotion in the bas reliefs. Quote: Some of the old ones in the decadent days had made strange prayers to the mountains, but none ever went near them or dared to guess what lay about. No human eye had ever seen them. And as I studied the emotions conveyed in the carvings, I prayed that none might ever. They are protecting hills along the coast beyond them. And I thank heaven that no one has built a land and climbed those hills. Um, end quote. That they're, because, they're, they're kind of desperation uh, and their desire to protect this civilization. Uh, and the emotion and the determination, I guess, in the Elder Things expression is, is a bit unnerving for, for Dyer. Now, we got the wars. The wars are certainly one aspect in their decline. Another is global cooling significantly. It's, there's e ecological changes, which might make the story of, in, of interest to people who are interested in climate change and interested in um, this idea that human civilizations are tied to the climate in very intimate ways, right? Um, but that's what happened here. It was like the climate change that created permanent polar uh, winter, um, you know, the Ice Age led, I don't know which Ice Age, it must have been a one, not the last Ice Age, but a previous one. Yeah, this is 500,000 years ago. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I forgot like the, the history. Does the Paleo, like the, the Paleolithic corresponds with that last Ice Age. So maybe this is all part of that same long Ice Age. Uh, but anyways, what, whatever the timeline is in geological time, it's this that causes the decline of the old ones. And how does he know? Well, he actually sees like the statues showing thinner elder things, showing like less landscape. This is, again, very, very contrived. It's hard to believe that all this would be revealed in the bas-reliefs and the murals. It's, it's very convenient that these stories are being told in this way. Um, you know, I can imagine just as easily that... Uh, the artistic expressions of a civilization in hunger might be a lot of images of fat and healthy people, you know, because they're trying to uh, project hope for better times or they almost becomes a religious prayer or something. But no, the, these images are directly documenting, you know, what happened without any symbolism, without any uh, need to interpret very much. That's the contrived nature of it. That's why I think it doesn't really work. But... He's trying to, you know, he thinks this is very important. He, he makes it a major component of the story. And I think it's, you know, it could have been just they go down, they see some monster and, and they have to flee. Um, you know, this could have been removed and the story would still sort of work. But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit into that world building he's trying to do. And we saw him doing it in The Whisper in Darkness and he's continually doing it here, you know, even up in his game um, significantly. It's just such a pity he couldn't find a better way to really do this than these these murals. Sorry to keep babbling about this, but it's um it's what it is. So they the civilization declines and they also become sort of decadent. But um, what we're told is that while they still rely on slave labor, even in their decline of their civilization. You know, and that, that, that makes it so they can't really repair themselves. They're kind of bound. They're bound to this slave race that they've created. And the Shoggoths themselves don't have the same experience of decadence, right? The power balance is shifting maybe towards the Shoggoths. 
Quote, the old ones had gone about it scientifically, quarrying insoluble rocks from the heart of the Honeycomb Mountains and employing expert workers from the nearest submarine city to perform the construction according to its best methods. These workers brought with them all that was necessary to establish the new venture. Shawgoth tissue from which to breed stone lifters and subsequent beasts of burden from the cavern cities and other protoplasmic matter to mold into phosphorescent organisms for lighter purpose, lighting purposes. At last, a mighty metropolis rose on the bottom of the Stygian Sea. Its architecture, much like that of the city above, and its workmanship displaying relatively little decadence because of the precise mathematical element inherent in building operations. The newly bred Shoggoths grew to enormous size and singular intelligence. They seemed to converse with the old ones by mimicking their voices, a sort of musical piping over a wide range. End quote. So the key thing here is that they completely owe their survival and their civilization to Shoggoth labor. This is uh, explicitly stated. They're not just an agricultural slave race. They are the, the reason this civilization even is maintained anymore, right? Um, and then we see the decadence among the elder things uh, working in to, to it. And, this, and then the con contrast is very, very explicitly to the end of the Roman Empire. Constantine is name dropped here. The Byzantine Empire is, is name dropped here. Like Rome is very much on Lovecraft's mind here, um, which he thinks their decline was largely due to cultural decadence. Uh, that's kind of a common idea. It's in Gibbon and, and other writers. Then there's just a little bit of a hint at the end of the chapter that these things might still be alive, uh, which of course is what's revealed in the, as we'll see in the next uh, episode where I finish up my thoughts on at the mountains of madness, but how like there's like um, seals that get these like wounds that seem to be from killer whales, but there's some scientific debate about it. Maybe it's, you know, these survivals, maybe it's some element of the civilization still trying to live on uh, by harvesting seals, uh, what's left of their food. So um, anyways, chapter eight details the decline of their civilization, both through decadence, but also through ecological change. Both happen. And actually, it's the ecological change first, which leads them to remove their civilization, become more dependent on the Shagas, who enhance their intelligence, um, not to their equal yet, but but still quite enhanced. Um, and then finally, their food supply runs out and they become more and more uh, few and desperate. So chapter nine. Um, chapter nine is another journey um, chapter. It, it's kind of like chapter, what am I, I guess, four. Um, in chapter four and five, no, five and six, maybe. That's what I'm thinking about. Chapters five and six that are really this um, plain right into the City of the Elder Things. Um, we get another chapter that kind of gets the characters kind of to the next stage of their journey. And we move away from this kind of reconstruction of the Elder Things history and past. Although we'll come back to it. We get a few more important details in a later chapter. So, um, so we return then to this theme that was dominant in those chapters five and six, which is the tension between curiosity and, si and the scientific drive and how they can't turn away despite the growing fear and anxiety about what they're going to see. Um, um, they're, you know, so I don't need to repeat that. I talked about it in the last episode, but basically it's, uh, you know, these guys are scientists and they can't really stop themselves from going deeper and deeper, but they're increasingly fearful about what they're experiencing and seeing there. Now, th there's two scents that are really important to this, two scents, two odors that are really central to this chapter. Um, 
The first is the odor that smells like, like the elder things. Quote, uh, Danforth's keen young, keen young nostrils gave us the first hint of something unusual. If we had had a dog with us, I suppose we would have been, we would have been warm before. At first, we cannot precisely say what was wrong with our formerly crystal pure air, but after a few seconds, our memories reacted only to definitively. Let me try to state the thing without flinching. There was an odor, and that odor was vaguely, subtly, unmistakably akin to what had nauseated us upon opening the insane grave of the horror poor Lake had dissected. Right? Now, they don't really have that body, but they have the, the site of the dissection, so they got that smell. So they experience, they know what an elder thing, a dead elder thing smells like, right? So that's the first smell. Um, now, the second smell that drives them further is the smell of gasoline, which is, of course, a very human. Uh, it's not part of the elder thing civilization, apparently. They seem to get their energy from some other source. It's obviously they're on the track of Gendry. Gendry's the only explanation. Uh, Gen, sorry, Gendi um, is the only explanation for this scent, right? And he's what they're all after, essentially. They've been distracted by the... You know, the entire millions years history of the Elder Things, and they somehow reconstruct it. And then, uh, you know, when they are done doing that, they're like, oh, by the way, we have to still find our, our, our colleague. <laughs> so this drives them forward, um, now being driven in part by curiosity. And there's a quote here I want to give you in a bit that reminds that it's still primarily curiosity that's driving them, but also this idea that they might finally catch this Gendi and find out what happened to the people at Lake's camp. And they, they, they're still under the impression that Gendi massacred them and killed them and and ran off um they find like a lot of the stuff from lakes camp scattered in the tunnels as well in this crypt it gets like it's darker and it's a little bit more underground and more tunnelless they're kind of getting into more um rough areas i guess as far as the city of the elder things are concerned but what i want to say is it's still primarily like um curiosity that seems to be moving them quote there are those who will say Danford and I utterly mad not to flee for our lives after that, since our conclusions were now, notwithstanding their wildness, completely fixed. And of a nature I need not mention to those who have read my account as far as this. Perhaps we were mad, for had I not said these horrible peaks were mountains of madness? But I think I can detect something of the same spirit, albeit in less extreme form, in the men who stalk deadly beasts through African jungles to photograph them or to study their habits. Half paralyzed with terror though we were, there was nevertheless fanned within us a blazing flame of awe and curiosity which triumphed in the end. A really great passage there. Um, which is something that drives so many of Lovecraft's characters, but it's never articulated so systematically as it is in this, this story. Even in Whisper in Darkness, we don't get that, that subconscious uh, or, or, or kind of primal drive to, to, to know. Um, I think it's an achievement of this story that he does that here. Um, anyways, they move in. Uh, there's a little bit more very detailed descriptions of the setting um, here in this these kind of vaulted corridors that they, they enter into. But eventually they find the bodies of Gendi and the dog. So um, their mission to rescue these or find these people find this person and, and get the answer to what happens to Lake Camp, Lake's camp, it ends up being a dead end because they're they're dead. Uh, and they've been dead a while. Uh, they were stiffly frozen, perfectly preserved, patched with 
adhesive plaster where some worms around the neck had occurred and wrapped with patient care to prevent further damage. So something weird kind of happened to them. And someone did this repairs to, to them. This includes the dog and the... Um, Well, anyway, I guess they're being wrapped the same way that the specimens were being, were, were wrapped. So anyways, they find the bodies. And, and that's where I guess I'll leave off. Um, so this section of the book, I, I guess uh, I thought I'd say a little bit more about it, but um, I guess I didn't need to. Um, especially chapters 7 and 8 really detail the history of the Elder Things, of a rising and falling civilization. And I, I think this is the best glimpse we get, at least in what he published, uh, you know, I think the mound is a close competitor to this, but uh, but that's a living civilization in decadent decline. Uh, this is one that's long since passed, you know, from significance. Still remnants there, but it's long since passed from, you know, having any really status on the planet, overtaken. Um, but it's it's his best meditation on on in in his fiction, anyways, on a rising, falling. Rising and falling civilizations, which takes up so much of his thinking, if we take the letters to be an accurate reflection of what he's thinking about. Um, so, anyways, um, we're almost to the end of the story, actually. Um, so we're, I think, about a hundred pages in in the Klinger antholo uh, anthology version, the annotated anthology. That leaves only about twenty pages left. Uh, the last three chapters which will tell us the story of the, the Shoggoth uprising that finally overthrows the Elder Things civilization. Uh, and then we find the, you know, what happens to Danforth? What was the, what did he see? Um, what drove him mad? Because uh, we don't forget, it, he hasn't mentioned it for a while, but Danforth, we're already told, went mad after these events. Um, and, and, you know, to, to some degree explain everything that happened at Lake's camp, hopefully. Um, there's hints, hints to that here as well, um, although still some mystery. So anyways, that will be what we'll, so we'll have one more episode on at the Mountains of Madness. But if you have any thoughts about this story, if you have any perspectives on it that I'm missing or, or not going into deep enough, uh, let me know what you those might be and send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Looking forward to finishing up this story and moving on to uh, the Shadow of Rinsmouth. Uh, so that's that's coming down the road a little bit. So, as always, thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Please don't let me lose my.